Highways Voices, the podcast of Highways News, your one-stop destination for all the news about the highways and transport technology industries, and our must-read daily newsletter. This week on Highways Voices, we hear about an innovative and inspirational way to recruit staff using a pool of workers you may not have thought of. They looked at all the different kind of metrics that an employer would want, such as productivity, longevity, all of these different metrics, and pretty well every single one, untapped talent beat the core group. A bridge of hope for returning citizens and how leading highways business Kylie Brothers is embracing the idea on this week's Highways Voices. Highways Voices, in association with partner organisations, the Transport Technology Forum, ITS UK, Elkrig and Adept. We meet James Fellows and hear his story and how he brings the industry a new talent pool of workers in a moment on Highways Voices after our usual check-in with Adrian Tatum with his pick of the stories that have caught his eye on the Highways News website. Millions of passengers across England will benefit from extension of the bus fare cap at £2. This is thanks to £155 million in government support which will also help maintain services and ensure people can travel affordably. Transport Secretary Mark Harper has confirmed £80 million from 1st of April to 30th of June this year to protect vital bus services people rely on for work, education, medical appointments and shopping. The government has also announced plans to provide up to £75 million so that bus operators can continue to cap single bus fares outside of London at £2 until the end of June. Elsewhere, Milestone Infrastructure, part of the M Group Services Transport Division, has been awarded Suffolk's new highway service contract, which will begin on the 1st of October this year. On an extensive procurement exercise, Suffolk County Council has confirmed Milestone will be its new contractor partner for up to 20 years. The new partnership, which is worth in the region of £800 million to £1 billion, will be delivering highway projects and improvements across Suffolk, including but not limited to maintaining roads, pavements and rights of way, drainage, hedge trimming, construction of new road schemes, snow clearing and gritting. Also, this week, South Yorkshire's Mayor Oliver Copard is calling a transport summit to build the vision for the future of the region's public transport network. He said a transport network which serves South Yorkshire's needs is key to better connected, more sustainable and a healthier region. But he warned that while South Yorkshire's and regions like it had been promised a London-style transport network by 2030, its residents are currently contending with looming cuts to bus services and council trains. The summit will bring together leading experts and will hear from a series of speakers with national and international experience to share best practice, discuss ideas and find solutions to fix the public transport network in the region. On top of those, you can also read about £56 million of funding for EV chargers, citizens help shape the future of self-driving vehicles, sat-navs could change their algorithms to stop people using rat runs, and praise for our guest on last week's podcast as Clearview Intelligence supports Rory Sutherland's call for a behaviour-first infrastructure second view on improving transport. Remember, you can read about all of these and so many more stories on our website highways-news.com where you can find links to our twitter and linkedin pages and of course you can sign up to our unique daily email into your inbox every lunchtime swaco improves quality of life by making the travel experience safer quicker more convenient and environmentally sound 
from software as a service traffic management solutions to parking, VMS, EV charging and road marking too. Find out how Swarco can deliver more efficient and safer traffic management. Swarco, the better way every day. Highways Voices with Paul Hutton and Adrian Tatum. Today's guest on Highways Voices is James Fellows. He's a man who, by his own admission, had all the opportunities and privilege you can get until it all came crashing down. He's the founder of an organisation called Bridge of Hope, which is delivering a talent pool of workers for the highways industry that are getting opportunities from, among others, carriageway and footpath surfacing and surface treatments company, Kylie Brothers. Now, James chatted to my friend Neil Levitt, the highway sector specialist who consults with Kylie and helped facilitate the partnership with James and Bridge of Hope. But we'll let James explain the background in what is definitely Definitely the most open and personal interview we've ever carried on Highways Voices. I was born white, male and exceptionally privileged. So I had a very happy, idyllic childhood just up the road of the M11 and Newmarket. And age 13, I was sent away to the world's most famous boarding school. Okay. Believe it or not, I was in the same class as a boy called Cameron, okay. who went on to run the country. And I was two years below a boy called Boris, never did catch his last name, who went to run the country into the ground. So you kind of get the level of privilege I had. I then went through Edinburgh University and I was in the drinks industry for 20 odd years, ending up running all the biggest customers in North America for Diageo, okay. the biggest drinks yep. company in the world. Yep. So Smirnoff, um, Johnny Walker, big Guinness, brands. some big brands. Um, so we were, I was happily married, I had three kids and I was living in a large mansion in Connecticut. What could possibly go wrong? Well, to be honest, everything, really. The luck turned 2008 when I got laid off for the first time. And then any, you know what, that could happen, did happen on, a, on an epic scale. And I got swindled, I got sued, I got swindled again and had my business taken away. And I got made redundant four times in six years. Wow. So it was all pretty hideous. And then because of the swindling and also a whole bunch of stuff around property, I effectively ran out of money as well, completely. And all the savings went. And there was a fateful day when I had to do the family weekly shop. I tried to cobble together as much money as I could. All I could find was $5.41 to feed a family of five. Um, so do the arithmetic, it's not good. My decision was, do I buy some Nutella and some bread or do I get some cereal? And it was then that, you know, I realized, you, you know, we're hardwired to feel, feed your children. And for the first time in my life, I was unable couldn't, to do that. Yeah, I couldn't yeah. do it. My wiring stopped, basically, un unraveled. And for the next three or four weeks, really, I couldn't operate. I couldn't turn on a computer at work. I couldn't, I, I couldn't do anything. Couldn't eat, couldn't do anything. And so I was taken to a doctor. And then they uttered the, you know, five most hideous words of my life, which is, you're going to be sectioned for the foreseeable future. So I didn't know whether that was for life or, or what, um, but I knew it was a scary place. So I then spent a couple of weeks in a psychiatric ward just outside New York. So fortunately, my brother and uncle came along and they did a bit of an intervention and suggested they take me away, put me back to the UK, have some recovery time with my mother. And everybody thought that was a good idea. I obviously didn't get a vote, but came back to the UK. And within a few weeks, unfortunately, it was clear that everything had unraveled. So my marriage went, my access to my kids went, my home went, my job went, my career went, and I had no money left. <laughs> so I lost a lot, all in the space of a couple of weeks. My consolation prize was a diagnosis of bipolar, uh, which at the time I didn't even know, <laughs> frankly, sure. what it was. Yeah. I had to try and find a job. And I was told by my doctor, look, you can't go and get a desk job, as it were. Sure, it's sure. got to be manual. <clears throat> uh, so I went to pubs, I went to coffee shops, I went everywhere. Is that to put less stress on you? Yeah, but nobody would give me a job. And having been white, male, and as you heard, beyond privileged, 
I'd never experienced a barrier to employment. Mm -hmm. And here was I not being able to get the most basic blue collar job of the lot. In the end, I actually did manage to get a job, but it was with a frozen food factory, a meat factory. They didn't care about my CV or my mental health condition. If I was prepared to get up at four in the morning and work for 12 hours at minus 55 degrees, I was welcome. (laughs) And I was. So I did that for nearly a year while my classmate was running the country. (laughs) The irony was not lost, you know, but I just had to sort of hunker down. I was like, well, there's no alternative and nobody else will give me a job, so better do a bloody good job at this. So I kind of clawed my way back into corporate, then went back into the drinks industry. That was going great. And I thought, okay, I'm back on the horse until I got laid off one more time. So that was 2018. And that was the seminal moment, really, that changed my life. Well, second big seminal moment, obviously, after being sectioned. And um, I decided, or I kind of got a bit of a tap on the shoulder, literally sitting in a churchyard and it was like, look, do you want to carry on flogging legal drugs, which is effectively what I was doing, Mm. or are you going to do something meaningful with your life, mate? So I decided the latter, but I didn't really know what, but I knew one thing for sure, it was going to involve jobs and employment. The reason being, when I'd had a job, life was golden, and when I didn't, it was utterly not golden. Yeah. <laughs> not yeah. golden indeed. Yeah. And I thought, well, it's probably ju- not just me. So I started trying to think about, okay, is there an angle, is there an opportunity, or is there a missing gap, as it were, around employability? And so I rang up a lot of charities uh, who looked after people, and yep. they helped people, whether they were helping veterans or people who come out of prison or neurodiverse, refugees, pick your poison. I said, kind of, what do you do? And I was talking to the chief executives, trying to understand what's happening, and they all did the same thing, which is they got people back off the streets, they picked them up, dusted them down, and they had an amazing program, and the the end game was to get them job ready, so they could potentially get a job. What do you do after that? And they're like, we don't do anything after that. And I had the same conversation 35 times in a row. I'm like, this is absolutely crazy. You've got this group of people who are now, you know, wonderful people. They've had a challenge, a setback, whatever it might be, but they're now ready to get back on the horse, ready to get back into society. And the one thing they need we all know is a yeah, job, absolutely. and there was nobody helping them do that. Meanwhile, 2018, even then, there was a talent shortage. Diversity and inclusion was kicking off as well, and people wanted more diverse talent, and they couldn't find them. And I'm like, okay, I know where they are. I'm like, there is a missing link. Why doesn't somebody connect the two? So there wasn't anybody. So we're like, well, let's do it ourselves. So I created the Bridge of Hope to connect job-ready talent coming out of charities to inclusive employers. So that was the the genesis of it. We trialed it for a couple of years. It went pretty well. I came out of the horse racing from Newmarket, um, but it wasn't very scalable. It was quite expensive. And then I met a chap called Michael on my journeys, and you'll find this hard to believe, but actually he had a even more epic career crash than I did, which is quite impressive because he was a partner at Deloitte. Then he joined a Nigerian bank. And then he spent two years, courtesy of Her Majesty, all-inclusive, in Brixton. Yeah. I said to him, what happened when you came out? He said, nobody would give me a job. <laughs> I was officially unemployable. And so he set up what is our social enterprise originally just to help people coming out of prison. And they did a very good job of that over four or five years before I met him. And they created a digital platform to scale that. And by 2020, they put six or 700 former offenders or returning citizens, or we like to call them, back into work. So amazing social value, utterly rubbish commercial model (laughs) because nobody was prepared to pay to hire somebody who'd been in prison. It was like good deed of the day. So you had these kind of two journeys. You had Michael's model, which was ex-offenders, digital, no money involved, and my fully inclusive model, not very scalable. And then we had a thing called COVID. (laughs) This came out of nowhere and all the funding for the charity dried up and all his funding dried up. And we were like, oh my God, we got like six weeks to live. 
otherwise we're done on both yeah. fronts. And so there's nothing like a burning platform <laughs> to focus the mind, yeah, yeah. as you can imagine. And this was this was inferno, full inferno. So we were like, well, we had a kind of three-year plan about merging everything. We're like, well, let's take that and make it a three-week plan. Thing, yeah. <laughs> so we said, all right, let's take his digital platform, my fully inclusive idea. Let's expand beyond just charities to skills partners as well, to non-Russell Group unis, and create a, a digital platform that's free to the candidates, free to the charities, but the employers pay, so a commercial platform. So that was the idea. I went back to the charities and said, look, we're not messing around patting horses anymore. You can put people into banks or um, you know, construction yeah, or sure. roads or logistics, whatever it might be, and it's free to you and it's free to your candidates. And they're all like, okay, we like the sound of this, but kind of what's the catch? And I said, well, there isn't a catch, but there are three conditions. Your candidates have to be job ready. Your words, not ours. We don't mend people. We yep. put them into work. Secondly, they've got to be a good person. We don't care if they've had a tumble, but if they're a jerk, they can go somewhere else. Sure. And finally, if they need any help, you deal with that. You're the expert, there's your individual. We're just a conduit and a bridge. And they all said yes, which was great. So now we're two years in, we hoped by now we'd have on this platform, say two or 3,000 people, which we'd have been very happy about, but we've got 79,000. And we have about 100 charities feeding in, we have a whole bunch of social enterprises and about two dozen non-Russell group units. So that was the journey. Wow. So it's quite a lot to take in there, really, in uh, in, in one uh, in one space of uh, you know a couple of minutes mm. from uh, from your own story. Um, yeah, but I mean, so the, the the phrase that you build around what you do yeah. is socially inclusive recruitment. I think you describe inclusive it as inclusive recruitment. Inclusive yeah. recruitment. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, well, so from from the, the the country and the wider yeah. population's benefit. What, what what's the uh, the benefit there of? Uh, of uh, well, to UK enorm- absolutely uh, uh, enormous, and I think you know. Let me just pick four talent pools, as we call them. We think of it as opportunities rather than problems. If you looked at homeless, for yeah. example, the number one reason for homelessness is loss of a job. The number one reason for getting back a home is a job. Yeah. <laughs> so that sort of checks that one. We talked about ex-offenders or returning citizens. Eighty-four percent still do not have a job after a year, and it costs sixty-three thousand pounds, probably gone up since then, per year to put somebody in prison. So what happens if you don't have a job? What's the alternative? Go back to prison. You cycle back back again. The missing link for that is get them into employment and break the cycle and change that and suddenly they're a taxpayer rather than a burden on it. So then I'd look at neurodiverse talent and neurodiverse talent is a huge missed opportunity for society and you could look at different groups. So for example, autistic, less than 15% of autistic people have a job who are over the age of 16. So that's 85% of people autistic do not have employment. But we know what an incredible talent pool that is. They're just employment and society is not woken up to that. Not geared up to Um, receiving them. Absolutely. And now they can work from home. You know, suddenly is a big change of opportunity. Safer in their own environment. Um, And likewise, dyslexic, huge opportunity, very, very creative, very entrepreneurial, but again, have all these barriers. So, and then the final sort of pool would be veterans. And there's a statistic which is really hideous, if you ask me, which is they're twice as likely to be unemployed as civilians. So there they are, laid their life on the line, defending the country, and when they come out, what do we do? Chuck them under Westminster Bridge. So again, all of these, it's the job that stops the unravelling. The research kind of proves that. And then there's all of the other social implications, knock-ons and effects for society of these people then that are are sort of missing the system for, for absolutely and then also for the family yeah of course and i can talk from first-hand experience and particularly having been made redundant the minute you are unemployed your confidence falls through the floor people yeah. look at you differently everything changes and then 
the minute you get a job, your purpose and everything like that. So there's a huge sort of social piece, but there's also a massive for the, for the individual and the family and their friends and everybody benefits by people being employed and everybody gets impact when they're not. You're listening to James Fellows, our guest on Highways Voices this week, and we'll hear what's in it for employers after we've had our partner news. Highways Voices, with the latest news and events from our partner organisations Elkrig, Adept, the Transport Technology Forum and ITS UK. We all know that the revolution in traffic modelling and digital twins and the network wide availability of real-time data and opportunities that AI and connected data and infrastructure provide are changing the way the traffic management system operates. The DFT wants your help to gather intelligence on the digital tools local authorities and the ITS industry are providing to plan and deliver road network management. The DFT's commissioned research to showcase the innovation that highway authorities are already planning or deploying to plan and deliver their traffic management systems. It's interested in any innovation in modelling and technology, no matter the scale, which will better enable traffic managers to deliver the network management duty in the Traffic Management Act 2004, which is to secure the expeditious movement of traffic on the authority's road network and facilitate the expeditious movement of traffic on road networks for which another authority is the Traffic Authority. You'll find out more about this on the Transport Technology Forum website. And talking of the TTF, ITS UK and the TTF have entered into a new partnership that will see the two organisations working together to better support the transport technology sector and the adoption of new technologies for the benefit of transport users. Under the new partnership arrangements, ITS UK and the TTF will work more closely together, working with the local council roads innovation group to bring the worlds of traffic and highway managers, data and technology suppliers and operators and innovators and researchers together to benefit the travelling public and the wider transport technology industry. And they'll also launch a new webinar series led by ITS UK on behalf of the TTF, exploring the key trends and challenges facing the transport sector up to 2030. And talking of Elkrig, emerging technology and maintenance solutions will be front and centre at this year's Elkrig Innovation Festival, which will take place on the 4th and 5th of July at Newark Showground. The overarching theme for this year's event is showcasing emerging technology and maintenance solutions, and Elkrig will be working closely closely with the Transport Technology Forum to deliver this. The private road network area will be used at the venue to carry out live demonstrations with a bigger exhibition space and demonstration area being used. Industry experts have been lined up to support the event and I will see you there. Finally, the Adept news this week comes from the original Live Labs programme as another of the projects has published their final business cases, providing details of the trials and their outcomes. As part of the Live Labs remit, each project was asked to share findings and knowledge with the wider highway sector. Kent Live Labs, who explored a number of innovations to improve the way we manage the network for our communities, has published a report on the ADEPT website. This includes reports on road condition monitoring route reports, winter services, operations management and network risk. You can find out more at the Adept website. Highways Voices, the podcast from highwaysnews.com. Highwaysnews.com. Now back to our guest James Fellows on this week's Highways Voices. He's chatting with my friend Neil Levitt, who pointed out to James that all he'd been talking about was great for applicants, 
But what about businesses? We're all business people in our organisation. We've all had a tumble. Everybody's been locked up of the management team of our organisation. I'm the only one that's been locked up in a psychiatric ward. Everybody else has been in prison. But we all think from a business point of view, and this is a business proposition. There is a social benefit, clearly, but from an employer, it's a business proposition. And the reason I say that is because the research is absolutely unequivocal. So, and it doesn't matter whether you talk about CIPD or business in the community, they've all looked at, and what, what they've kind of typically done is said, look, compare the two groups. Group A is untapped talent, as we like to call them, yep. you know, from all these marginalized groups. Group B is normal talent, typical talent, whatever, you yep. know. Then they looked at all the different kind of metrics that an employer would want, such as productivity, longevity, all of these different metrics, and pretty well every single one, untapped talent beat the core group. Pretty right. well everyone. But there were a couple that it absolutely went spiked completely, was productivity, massively more productive. Because, hey, you give them second chance, I'm going to work my butt off. Not only going to work my hard, the longevity and the tenure, so retention, the second one, because you've been given that chance, you don't think you're going to get another chance. There's a loyalty there. There's a loyalty that just doesn't exist when you're just, it's a transactional job. So put that together, it's a very powerful case. I mean, I I can talk from first-hand experience. I worked my ass off as a janitor for a year because they gave me a chance. I was paid minimum wage. I did 100-hour weeks and it was minus 55 degrees, but I've never worked harder in my life. Well, I mean, we we keep hearing every day on the news that there's a skill shortage, you know, people are looking for talent to come and join their their businesses. Um, So maybe this is something more and more businesses should uh, should be looking into. Absolutely. On the subject of that, are there any specific areas of employment where there's certain businesses that are doing better than others in these talent pools? Or One will not surprise you, one will surprise you probably. Okay. Uh, so the one that won't surprise you will be Timpsons. Yeah. So they've obviously been pioneers in this case. Uh, yeah. James Timpson's been hugely uh, supportive of this. Something like 15% of Timpson employees have come out of prison and they saw it as an opportunity and a way of getting great staff, <laughs> all the things we've been talking about. And so they actually have their own training academy inside right. prisons. They've got one I, and I was sent, having talked to James Simpson when I was setting it up, he said, look, you've got to go and see what we do. There's no point in me talking to you. I went and saw them and I was like blown away, unbelievably professional, really competent. And at the end, if you passed your exams effectively they would guarantee you a job so are they, the are they training people once they're out of prison or no, they train them actually in, inside, inside the, the prison oh wow okay yeah so they have the academy the in the prisons wow and they were all suited and booted ties and immaculate and i was hugely impressed by i was also conscious i'm going to have to go and flog this idea of people and of course there's always the elephant in the room about yeah. trust so i said well how do you handle that um and the guy said well it's quite simple so they come out, they're offered a job, you get the job in Timpsons in Southampton, etc. The first thing they do on your first day, at the end of the day, they say, there's the takings, can you take it down to Barclays at the end of the road? Now, some people look at them and go, you do realise I was an armed robber in my earlier days, or I had a big fraud or whatever. And the answer is, hurry up, Barclays closes in 15 minutes. Yeah. Uh, and nobody's run off with the takings. Um, in fact, when Timpson did an article on honesty in the Sunday Times business section, he said every, there's dishonesty in every um, business, it just, it's just a fact of life. Yeah, well. um, he said, but the one area we have no issues ever in our organisation is the group that came out of prison. Ever. Goes back to that loyalty piece that you spoke <laughs> Absolutely, about. and trust, and I mean, mutual trust. So that's one, and then one which you probably weren't unlikely to have heard of, but I think they're a fantastic organisation and a great model, is a, an organisation called Recycling Lives. A re- small little recycling, mid-sized recycling company in Preston. And again, when I was setting up the Bridge of Hope, they said, look, somebody said, you've got to see these guys. So went up to Preston, 
talked to the CEO and I said, so what do you do? And he said, well, we're just a recycling company, TVs and fridges, nothing very spectacular, uh, but we've grown quite a lot. After a couple of years, it went well, so they created a foundation. And I said, well, what was the purpose of that? And he said, we didn't really know. We'd kind of just created it and then made it up on the fly. And I said, okay, well, how did it go? He said, well, kind of a little bit better than we thought. And so they decided to try and help homeless people um, in the Preston area, really. And so they went around, drove around Preston, and they'd find people and they're like, look, would you like another crack at life or would you like another Carlsberg? And if it was a former, they said, well, come with us. We've got a program to try and help you get back on your feet and put a roof above your head and then a potential job. And so the ones who said they wanted to have another crack came in, put them through a program. You know, this obviously developed over four or five years. And the end game, a bit like Timson's, is there's a job. I'm like, okay, I love it. This is a brilliant, brilliant model. Um, everybody wins. Um, I said, so what were the biggest benefits? And so the CEO sort of looked at me and he said, well, there were three. The third biggest benefit was productivity. He said, it went through the roof. He said they worked way harder than our normal employees. So the employers then had to work harder to keep up with them. That was the third best. And I said, okay, what's second best? He goes, we don't have a word for retention. Nobody leaves. He said, it's acted like a glue to our organization. And I'm like, okay, this is brilliant, but how do you trump those two? And he said, well, that's the one I'm a bit embarrassed about, but it's true. And I said, what? And he said, we never lose a pitch. He said, well, when we go to pitch for a business, and let's say it's the recycling in Brentwood, we're probably against four or five others, and they all put a bid in saying it's going to cost X per tonne. Sure. And somebody will say, I'll do it 5% discount, somebody yeah. 15% discount. And they're like, look, do 100 tonnes, we'll put one homeless person into work. Do 500 tonnes, we'll put 10 homeless people into yeah, work. Sure. And he said, we win every bid. Because they're just like, of course we want to do that. Everybody wants to do, you know, and the local businesses want to do the right thing. And, and I said, well, what's your pricing? He said, oh, we're more expensive than the most expensive one. <laughs> so it actually proved to be a competitive advantage, a commercial driver, and change lives. Which is like the Nirvana. If you can get that three win, from, so yeah. you get the win from the social aspect of, of making yourself as a human being feel as though you're doing something good for society. Yeah. You're helping society yeah. because you're, you're trying to get people who were previously a cost to UK mm. PLC being a taxpayer, so they're contributing. Absolutely. You're then getting, obviously, that person making himself feel better from a human point of view. Then from a business perspective as well, um, you're getting a pool of talent that weren't necessarily being explored before or, yeah. or dealt with before and good retention. I'm struggling to see a loser there. <laughs> there isn't one, and you're missing one, which is the final bit, which is the social value. Yeah. So if you're going in, you just heard what they did. For but effectively, if you're, a, you know, in the construction industry, be able to go and say, we we hire from these different talent pools, and that's what helps our retention, etc. Yeah. Or if we're going to do a job off the M25 Junction Eight, we can go and find people from different groups in that area, in that area and get them back on the feet into employment. What's not to like, because yeah. it's back to that everybody wins. Yeah, well, I mean, from, from, from Kylie's um, perspective, who I consult with and do a lot of work with, they're you know, really proud to be signing their um, social inclusive partnership for recruitment uh, with Bridge of Hope. The, the type of job that we have and the type of work that we do doesn't tend to be the, the top of anyone's lift on careers evening when they're sort of 15, 16, I want to work on the roads. Yeah. We tend to have people that fall into our type of line of work. Um, you know, we do road, road markings, there's various surface treatments, big waste and recycling business. You know, This is labour intensive work that people are doing, skilled labour, yeah. um, but labour intensive as opposed to cerebral. And we're working from the Scottish Isles down to the Isle of Wight, mm. uh, and then from Anglesey to Anglia. So it's covering the whole of the UK. 
Is that something that we can look forward to getting support from? Absolutely. I mean, that's what the partnership is. I mean, the core element of it is is we can do all the job posting. So all your jobs out there, we can put them out and showcase them to our, we've got best part of 80,000 candidates registered at the moment, 40,000 alive. So we can show them all these different jobs. Secondly, you'll be getting what's called a sourcing license. So you'll be able to come into our platform, have a look at the 40 or 50,000 who are live and go, hey, look, uh, maybe five or six around the M25 Junction sure. 8, who might be interested in you tap on the shoulder. You go, never heard of Kali probably. However, this is yeah. what we do and we give an amazing program. And by the way, we work with all these different organizations and you can go and actively tap them on the shoulder and bring them in. So the, the two combined is a really kind of powerful combination. The majority are probably younger and blue collar, but you know, look, shit can happen you know you could be a CFO in um, Libya come in as a great project manager for yeah, example sure. or you may have been in prison may have had an addiction etc but the majority are kind of lower level and operatives is a big big opportunity really and that's kind of we work with quite a few clients on that front yeah well, I mean you, we, you spoke about loyalty one of the things with Kylie is that they are a family owned business then yeah. they're in the third generation of, of the company ownership so it's the, uh, the the grandchildren of the original owners uh, yeah. loyalty is a big thing for yeah. them you know it's the even though they're a hundred million pound turnover business as a family owned business, it's still got that family ethos to it. And so loyalty is a massive part of what they do. And we've had people that have been in the business come in as a very junior member of staff on the labor force and now in the senior management team. To, to hear this type yeah. of thing, these are the types of employees and staff. Well, that's what our talent will be really excited about. Because yeah. the reality is they won't have heard of you because yeah. you're not a household name. Yeah. But to be able to go to them and say, this is what we are. We are a family business, you know, and this is our culture and our approach and here's how we look after people and these are the groups we hire people from. To a lot of people that's very attractive. We wanted to obviously look at this area but one of the things that we couldn't do was go around to our staff and say you look a bit rough have you been to prison Uh, and so we had to put an email out that said we were thinking about going down this line and would anyone be prepared to be a buddy you know um, have, have you had any experience of the, the judicial yeah. system. Yeah. We were fortunate that a couple of our members of staff put their hand up and said, well, it, it's no secret that yes, I have. And so they've already been along and they've uh, they've, they've put their hands up to say, oh, I'll act as a mentor and a buddy. Brilliant. So we wanted to support those we've already got in the business yeah. before we go out and, and try and um, take on any, any new people. Um, and as I said, with the type of work that we have, people tend to drift towards this side of the, the sort of the world. It's yeah. people that have been on, I hate to say it, but the, sort of the periphery of mainstream yeah. recruitment. And so when we started to look into it and we had the conversations, we, we worked out that maybe about six or 7% of our employees had already had some kind of issue previously, whether that be an addiction or whether or not that be, you know, um, trying to uh, it's probably get hard themselves. Possibly, probably. Yeah. Definitely. For us to be able to support them, for, you know, going back to that family thing, hang on a second, this isn't something we'd even considered before. Yeah. Now we're aware of it. We are morally obliged to at least help what we've got before we bring in Absolutely. others. So we've set a program in place there where there's the buddying system. Those members of staff have let themselves known to, to their colleagues to say, look, if you need to ring, give me a shout. I think that's brilliant. I yeah. think that is really and brilliant. the family have said as well, you know, if anyone's there that needs support, Let's have the conversation and um, see what we can do to support them. So, um, On behalf of everybody from Bridge of Hope, thank you so much. And to, to thanks for bring, bringing this opportunity to us as well. Look forward okay. to it. Cheers. Cheers. That's James Fellows, founder of Bridge of Hope, chatting to Neil Levitt on Highways Voices. Bridge of Hope brands itself as the home of inclusive careers. And if you're inspired by what you heard from James and like Kylie Brothers, want to work with him, you can find out more at Bridge of Hope. 
careers. Highways Voices with Paul Hutton and Adrian Tatum. Now, before we go, let's just quickly hear from Adrian with this week's Adrian's Accolade. My accolade this week goes to the team at Traffic Group Signals. In an industry first, the company welcomes a custom-built command centre vehicle into its fleet, reimagining what it means to deliver best-in-class traffic management solutions, a first of its kind for the industry. This allows the company to deliver an agile and truly unique service. The new trailblazing vehicle houses everything the technical team and customers need to commission and control even the most complex sites in safety and comfort. And thanks to a mobile CCTV deployment on the four-meter mask, where on-site traffic group signals team can access live feed of the traffic flow from within the vehicle displayed across two screens. So a really interesting innovation there and worthy winners of my accolade this week. That sounds like a great innovation and a worthy winner of Adrian's accolade this week. That will do it for Highways Voices this week. Thanks to my guest James and his interviewer Neil. Thanks to Adrian and I'll see you next Wednesday for more. Do join Adrian and me then. Highways Voices. Join us again next week for more insights from those that matter in the industry. 